say that it's now officially a month that I've been here as the Minister and we've been made to feel very welcome. It was a bit like coming home to, to join you guys here but on a permanent basis. So uh, now everything's completely unpacked over there and so we feel very settled in. But I'd like you to continue to uh, pray for me, pray that I will be faithful in the preaching of the word here. Uh, it was interesting last year when I was had the opportunity to preach at a number of different places uh, while I was a student and I'd be preaching the same sermon. I'd sort of carry them on and go around to different places and in some places I'd feel very stressed and nervous before I preached and in other places I always felt very comfortable and quite, uh, quite assured that everything would be okay and I think a lot of that's involved with the congregation and how much they're praying for the minister, praying for the preacher and so if you want a good sermon on Sundays I will do my best but please continue to ask God for a good sermon. Ask him to continue to help me to know what to say and how best to say it. Please uphold me in prayer over uh, the time that I am here. Now, I've had a good month so far, but I'd like to continue and to enjoy bringing God's word to you week by week. And I ask for your prayers uh, for me to do so. All right, well, let us speak with God and have a look at his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to have your word before us. We thank you for the privilege it is to meet together and to listen to what you have to say. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the gifts that you give us and the way that we are able to use them to help one another. We pray that you will use me this morning, that I may be faithful and true to what you have to say and that we may be built up in the faith as a result of looking at your word. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I remember the day after my wedding feeling very relieved, an enormous amount of relief. Now, for some people that might be relief that the bride showed up, but that was never really much of an issue for me. I I didn't have that kind of doubt. I don't know why. I, I must have felt very sure that Jill would come along and want to marry me, so I wasn't nervous about that. But I remember feeling relieved that the most organised day in my life was over. It's the most organised day, even, even when you have children. I mean, it's a bit of an impromptu thing that comes along. You know, you don't know what's going to happen and so you don't have the same organisation that goes into the wedding. It's the most organised day of your life. For example, you've got to firstly find a girl. That's the hard part. Or if you're a girl, you've got to find a guy. And then you've got to set the date after she's said yes. And then you've got the marriage classes, the church has to be booked, the honeymoon has to be booked, the invitations sent out, the flowers for the church, the Bible passage, the songs have to be chosen, the vows, if you're going to write your own or what ones are you going to choose, the wedding dress has to be sorted out, the bridesmaids dresses have to be sorted out, the groom's suit, the groomsman's suits, because there's a difference between the way the groom is dressed from the groomsman. Uh, different colour maybe, handkerchief, that kind of thing. Then you've got to work out what you're going to do about photos. Are you going to have video and who's going to do that? And then you've got to work out your rings because you've got to have the rings on the day there as well. And then, of course, there's the reception. You've got to organise that as well. So not just the ceremony at the church. You've got invitations that you have to send out to there because you might send out invitations to people to come to the wedding and for a morning tea afterwards, but then you've got other people uh, that are closer to you that you invite along to the reception. So you've got two sorts of invitations to send out. You've got the food to organise. What are you going to have to to eat and drink? And then you've got the table arrangements. So you've got to have more flowers there. You don't just have flowers at the church. You have flowers at the reception. And you get to choose those. You've got to work out what you're going to do about music, whether you're going to have a DJ, you're going to have a live band come along. 
And of course you've got to have a cake and so you've got to work out what you're going to do about the cake. Maybe you have different cake layers to suit different tastes. We had white chocolate mud for one layer and we had the traditional fruit for the other so that everybody would be happy, that kind of thing. And then you've got to work out what you're going to do about speeches as well. So much organisation, so much organisation going into one day. And whenever there's so much organisation, of course, there is so much potential for disaster, so much potential for something to go wrong, for a wedding dress to be torn, for, uh, for the weather. That is one of the big things, that you can't pay the, the weatherman to make sure that the weather's going to be correct. If it pours rain, disaster. There's so many things that can go wrong. And of course, one of the big things that could go wrong is something happens with the food or the drink at reception. And that's what we see in this story that we've got here of Jesus Christ. We see a wedding disaster. A wedding disaster come along and Jesus saves the day. They run out of wine and Jesus walks up and he saves the day by providing more wine. The question is, is why is this recorded for us? Why does John record this miracle? John's very picky on miracles and so he doesn't always record all of them, but he records this one. Why does John record this miracle? Is it because... He's wanting to have Christianity appeal to brides, that the brides can sympathise with this and so he's appealing to the women. He's appealing to them that Christianity, Jesus, he has a soft spot for brides. Jesus is someone that I could follow because he has a soft spot for brides. He knows what it's like to be stressed and organising a wedding. Is that the reason? Or is it just simply that weddings are important to Jesus, that Jesus does see a time for weddings, that he doesn't forbid people to marry, as some religions uh, forbid certain people from marrying. No, we see Jesus coming along to a wedding. Is that the point of this miracle, that Jesus endorses weddings, that he endorses merriment, he endorses having feasts and enjoying yourself? Some people in their religions, they minimise that down. They say, no, 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 no time for joy, no time for being merry, no time for feasting. But here we see Jesus going to a feast. Is that the point of the story? Is it the fact that he endorses wine? You know, some people, some religions, they abstain completely from alcohol and here we see Jesus drinking wine, making wine and so some people take this as a wonderful proof text that Christians can drink alcohol. Is that what John the Apostle was trying to do? He was trying to endorse wine, trying to endorse alcohol. No, the point of this passage, although you can take those things, particularly the marriage one, that Jesus is there for marriage, that we should be happy as well, The point of this is to do with the miracle, that Jesus is a transformer. These these miracles that uh, that John records of Jesus are always called signs. He doesn't call them miracles and we see that he calls them signs. In verse 11 it says, of John chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 11 it says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. John always refers to Jesus' miracles as signs, that they are something happening, there's some sort of miracle happening, but it's pointing to some deeper theological reality. And so he's very careful about which miracles he chooses. And so when we see a sign, when we see one of the miracles of Jesus occur in John's Gospel, we've got to think, what is the deeper theological significance here? And we see this repeatedly through John's Gospels. We see when he feeds the 5,000, he makes lots of bread for the people. What does he then go and say? says, I am the bread of life. He ties it in. He's done this miracle. I can provide food here, but I can also, I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives life 
spiritual life. I'm the one who gives eternal life. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Just as I raised this guy from the dead, I am the resurrection. I am the one who can bring resurrections about. And when he heals the blind man, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. A man was in darkness, I healed him, and so I do on a deeper level. I am the light of the world. I am the one who brings spiritual light into people's lives. So we've always got to think when we're reading John's Gospel, what's the deeper theological significance here? What is he pointing to? It's a sign. It's pointing to something. What is it pointing to? And I believe that it's pointing to the fact that Jesus transforms. He doesn't just transform wine, but he transforms people as well. He transforms people as well. And so what I'm going to look at this morning is a number of the things that we learn about the way that Jesus transforms the way that Jesus transforms. Because we see him transforming the wine and we can take deeper lessons from that about how he transforms people. How he transforms people. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus always transforms when there is a need. When there is a need. And we see this with the wine. We see that wine was needed. Verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. There's a need there. Wine has run out at the party and Jesus is told about it. There's a need there. Now, is this a a great need? Well, for some brides, of course, they would say, oh, yes, terrible thing that's happened. But is it more than just a social embarrassment here? This is actually quite a serious situation in this society because there was only really two things that you could drink in this society. You could either drink water or you could drink wine. And so if you had a party... It was always supposed to be wine that was drunk because you drank water the rest of the time. You'd want to be drinking wine. And so it's a major thing for the wine to run out. And when people came and gave wedding gifts to the the bridegroom and to the, the bride, they would actually see that as kind of a payment for the celebration. And so if you didn't actually provide and they gave that gift, you could actually have a lawsuit put upon you and actually have the money that the guest had given you taken back. They would actually file a lawsuit against you and recover it. And and people are actually called thieves within Judaism uh, at this time if they invited people along for for a lunch or for a dinner and weren't able to provide for them. You're actually considered a thief. And so when you went to someone else's wedding, you ate and drank, and when they came to your wedding you were supposed to provide for them or otherwise it was big trouble. And so this situation here is actually a potentially financially crippling situation for the new couple, for this, wedding, for this bride and groom. They were getting off to an extremely bad start here. They could face quite a few lawsuits down the track and be up for a lot of money and, whether, and how that would affect the marriage would be quite disastrous. So we see a tremendous need here, not just simply a social embarrassment, that, oh, that wedding that I went to the other day, they ran out of uh, wine. No, 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 it's actually quite a serious thing. And so Jesus comes along and sees that need and then solves it. He transforms this water into wine. And so it is with the deeper theological significance with Jesus changing us, changing people. We need to see that there's a need. He changes when there's a need. And we as humans all have a need that we need Jesus to transform us from our sins. As non-Christians, 
we have this immense amount of sin upon us. We do things wrong all the time and they're added up, God keeps a record of them and eventually we'll be called to give an account for them. We need to have those things taken away and so we need to acknowledge that need. If you're not a Christian, you can't think that God will transform you just because you're a good person. If you're already good enough, there's no need for him to transform. We need to admit that we are having a need, that we are sinners, that we need Jesus to come along and transform us. And if you're a non-Christian, that's what you need to do. You need to admit that you are a sinner and go to God. You can't go to God and say, I'm okay with you. You need to say that I have a need. I need you, Jesus, to transform me. And as Christians, we need to continue doing that. We need to continue admitting we have a need. We don't become Christians and think everything's okay and we don't need Jesus to transform us anymore. He's transformed me completely. No, we continue to sin. We need to recognise the sin that's in our lives, not be comfortable with it and continue to go to Jesus and say, I need you. I'm very much an independent person. I don't like depending on people. I like to do things myself. And so it's hard for me to admit my need for someone else, to need someone else's help. And so it is with God, with Jesus. I need to continually be asking him for help as a Christian, that I have a need, I have sin in my life and I need you to help me, Jesus. Just as you are able to transform water into wine, I need you to transform my life and help me overcome the sin in it. So the first thing that we see about the way that Jesus transforms is that he transforms when there's a need. The other thing that we see is that Jesus transforms because he wants to. He transforms because he wants to. He doesn't transform the water because he's told to do by someone else. He does it because he desires to do it. We see that this drawn out for us in the way that he interacts with his mother. His mother comes to him and tells him in verse 3, they have no more wine. And then we see him kind of rebuke her. It's kind of a gentle rebuke, but it's a rebuke nevertheless. He wants to tell her that he's not going to provide extra wine or do something about it because she's telling him to. He's going to do something about it because he wants to, because it's his desire to do so. And the way we see this is is there's three things in verse 4 that point out this sort of gentle rebuke to him. The first one is the way that he uh, calls her, what he calls her. He calls her dear woman. Now literally in the Greek that is the word just straight woman, not dear woman. The the NIV's tried to soften it a bit. And it sounds pretty harsh and cold. If I was to say to my mum, mum what's for dinner? It's quite different from saying woman what's for dinner? It would uh, would be quite a, a statement about what I think of my mother. Now, in, the, in, in other contexts where this word is used, woman, it can be used affectionately, but it's still, it's still not as harsh as with the English, but it, it, it still shows some distancing. And really, the best equivalent would be ma'am to it. So, he's saying, ma'am, what's for dinner? It, it shows that I'm not being too harsh and saying, woman, what's for dinner? But I'm saying, ma'am, what's for dinner? I'm, and it shows a bit of distancing, but a bit of politeness as well. And so he's, he's trying to distance himself from his mother there and say, I'm not going to do this just because you're my mum. Ma'am. He's saying, ma'am, why do you involve me? And that, that word, uh, those words, why do you involve me, 
it, it's one of those phrases that the, the demons actually say to Jesus. When Jesus comes up to them and they get all afraid, they say, uh, what is between us? What is with you and me? It's kind of this, uh, this phrase that occurs quite a few times in the Gospels. What is between us? What, what sort of do you have to do with me? What is between us? And so he's kind of denying that there's something between them anymore, that Jesus has now moved from being a son of Mary to being someone who is independent and doing things because of his own accord and not because of his mother ordering him to do things. And so he does things on what schedule? Verse 4, after Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. He does things according to his timing. He doesn't do things according to his mother's timing or to his brother's. Later on we see in John's Gospel that the brothers say, if someone wants to be known publicly, you you have to go along and do these things. His brothers try to tell him what to do. And he says, no, no, no. No one tells me what to do. I do things because I want to do them. And so it is with the deeper theological significance. We see here that Jesus doesn't turn water into wine because someone tells him to. He does it because of his own pleasure. And it's the same with us. God, Jesus, transforms us because of his own pleasure, because he's doing it because he wants to. We can never order God to transform us. We come to him, we submit to him, we are humble before him and we beg him to do it. Now there is a sense that we can come to God and be bold in saying transform me because he's promised that he will not turn people away who come to him and really repent and really believe in him, he will not turn them away. But the only reason we can do that and be bold is because he made the promise in the first place. He had no need to come and, and save us, to make promises to us. When we sinned, we're completely written off. God is under no obligation whatsoever to save you or me. But he in his pleasure, just as he is on his own timing there with the water and the wine, he in his pleasure chooses to save us, chooses to do so because of his pleasure. And so we should really come to him in humility and ask him to transform us. Ask him when we become, go from being non-Christians to Christians, we have to come to him, humbly submit, say we're wrong, say we've got a need, we need you to transform us but you only do it because it's your pleasure to do so. And it's the same thing as we overcome the sin in our lives as Christians. The only reason we're able to overcome the sin in our lives is because God in his pleasure gives us his Holy Spirit and helps us to do so. And so we need to come to God. We can be bold and give him back his promises and say, look God, you've promised to do this, but we have to remember that fundamentally the only reason we have those promises is because... God, in his pleasure and in his own timing, desired to give them to us. Thirdly, we see that Jesus often transforms in conjunction with the obedience of humans. He often transforms in conjunction with the obedience of humans. We see this when he transforms the water into wine. We see obedient people there with him. And the first one we see, of course, is Mary. Mary's had this rebuke. She doesn't know what's sort of going on. I'm starting to be called ma'am now rather than mother. And so she has this rebuke, but does that stop her? No, we see in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She knows that that, uh, she's been rebuked here and she knows that Jesus still can help out and she knows that the best thing to do in this situation is to just do whatever he might tell you to do. 
Do whatever he tells you. And so we see that happening with the servants. We see that they're obedient. What, what happens? Verse 6, we see that there's uh, stone water jars there and then Jesus in verse 7 said to the servants, fill the jars with water and what do they do? So they filled them to the brim. They didn't debate, they didn't say, oh, you know, while we're worrying about water, we need wine. Why worry about these ceremonial jars? No, they obey. They fill them to the brim. Then he told them in verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Did they debate? Oh, no, 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 it's just water. We can't take that to the master of the banquet. What does it say at the end of verse 8 there? They did so. They were obedient. And so Jesus transforms in the situation of obedience of humans there. Now he doesn't do this because he needs us to be obedient. We we don't need to be obedient for God to do some transforming. But he seems to like us to be obedient and then he does some transforming around it. And we see this today as well. The deeper theological significance of this sign is that Jesus transforms people. And often God uses obedient people in the process of helping the transform to happen. And so we see it with, uh, with, I'm up the front right now trying to be obedient to God and hopefully through my obedience to him he starts to transform people as I preach his word. And so it is with missionaries who go out, they're being obedient to Jesus and doing whatever he tells them to do and hoping that God will do some transforming. He likes to do things in conjunction with obedience. And we see the opposite effect when churches start to not do whatever he tells them to do. That sometimes the churches start to empty. They start to not have many people in them. A classic example is in some of the more liberal uh, Protestant denominations in America. Some of those denominations, they say, it's all right to have women in positions of leadership, women uh, having authority over men. They say, the Bible says, don't. But we say... We don't have to do whatever he tells us. We can do things our own way and God will still do some transforming. But a lot of these denominations, they've got huge churches, big properties that they've inherited from previous congregations. They've changed the rules. They've got women preachers and the churches are emptying. They're wondering why they've got so few people there on Sunday. Why isn't God transforming people? Maybe it's because you're not doing whatever he tells you to do. So we see less conversions when people aren't doing whatever Jesus tells us to do. He doesn't require us to be obedient so that he can transform, but he likes to see us being obedient and then he brings some transformation, he brings some growth. And so it is within our own lives as well. We can't expect Jesus to transform us when we're completely always going our own way, doing whatever I tell myself to do. We need to do whatever Jesus tells us to do if we want to expect to see him transforming our lives and making us stronger and stronger Christians all the time. Fourthly, the other thing that we see about Jesus transforming is that he transforms easily. He transforms easily. We are not told how he does the miracle. He doesn't strike the pot. He doesn't, and some of the, Jesus' miracles, he does some spitting. I didn't want to do that in the children's talk. But yes, sometimes he spits and he he rubs that in people's eyes, that kind of thing. He doesn't uh, pray for the pots. He doesn't do anything like that. No, what does he do? He just simply wills it to happen, and it happens. Jesus can transform so easily this water into wine, and so it is with us as well. He can transform people so easily. 
We should never think that someone is beyond God, that someone is beyond Jesus. They're too hard-hearted. They're too much of an atheist. They hate God so vehemently that they could never be a Christian, that they're beyond Jesus' transforming power. But no, we see he just wills that water to become wine and so it is with humans as well. There is no one too hard. We should never think that someone is beyond Jesus' grasp. He can transform easily. And it's the same with the sin in our lives as Christians. We should never think that some sin that we struggle with so much is just too difficult for Jesus to help us overcome, to transform our life, to take that behaviour and transform it into something else. So we just go, oh, it's too hard, I'm just going to continue sinning and I'll try and minimise it in ways that I can, but I won't try and put it to death, crucify that sin and try to overcome it because it's just too much beyond Jesus. He can't transform that, too hard. No, we've got to remember this water and this wine. He transforms so easily and so it is with our behaviours. There is no sin that you struggle with that is beyond his help. Go to him and ask him for help and he can do it so easily. He can do it instantly. There are many stories of people who become Christians and suddenly they have no desire for alcohol anymore. They were previously a drunk and they they never thought they'd be able to overcome their alcoholism. But... They become a Christian and instantly didn't desire a drink ever again. They overcome it straight away and never get drunk again. There is no sin that is beyond him. We should never admit defeat. Jesus can easily transform. Fifthly, Jesus transforms abundantly. Jesus transforms abundantly. We see this with the wine. He's got these jars over here and we're told about how much they hold. But were they sort of half full when he transformed them? Was it something that he he just did a sort of a half-hearted job there? No. What do the servants do? In verse, uh, verse 7 he says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. There was no chance of Jesus adding something in to, to, to make it, his job a bit easier. No, they're to the brim with water. And we're given an estimate of how much they would hold. Now it says there in verse 6 that they were holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I guess I'm showing my age that I don't really know what a gallon is. I've never really looked it up. But uh, thankfully the NIV footnote has there uh, the letter D in verse 6. We drop down, we see that the Greek original word is uh, 2 to 3 metres, which in brackets is probably about 75 to 115 litres. So at the most 115 litres of wine. Is that a small amount of wine? Well, I did a bit of a calculation with generally wine comes in 750ml bottles, is that right? And I calculated if we do 115 litres divided by 750ml, we get 153 bottles of wine. 153 bottles of wine on the shelf. That's an awful lot of wine for this party. Jesus didn't say, how much do you need? Oh, I'll transform that much. No, he goes and makes 153 bottles of wine. 153. He transforms absolutely abundantly for these people. And so it is with us as well. Jesus transforms abundantly. He doesn't just transform a select number of people. That 144,000, as some cults would say, they're the ones that can come in. They're the ones who are accepted. No. Jesus can transform abundantly. He can transform as many people as he wants. 
He can transform the entire world here living on this planet today. He could do it. He can transform abundantly. Just as he transforms this wine abundantly, so he can transform people's hearts abundantly. He could give us all of Sydney. just need to pray and ask him to do it. He might not do it. He does it at his own pleasure. He does it for his own purposes. But he could do it. And we should want to see him do it. He can transform abundantly. Why shouldn't we want to see him do it? Pray that he will. And so it is in our own hearts as well. He can transform us abundantly. He can help us overcome many sins. He doesn't say, there's so many sins that I can overcome, that I can transform, and then you're done with your quota. No more help. No, he can continue helping you all through your life as you struggle with different sins. You struggle with anger problem. He helps you overcome that. Then you struggle with lying. He helps you overcome that. Then you struggle with pornography. He helps you overcome that. He can help you overcome abundantly in your life. You just need to go to him and believe it. Just as he transformed this wine abundantly, so he can transform my life. And then sixthly and finally, we see that Jesus transforms perfectly. We see that this new wine is better than any previous wine. We see this in verse 9. The, they draw the water and then verse 9 says, And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus' wine, which was just water, was better than any wine that had been created. It was the choice wine. This master of the banquet was so shocked by the taste of this wine. It wasn't sort of close, oh, this is slightly better. So shocked that he called the bridegroom and said, look, I've been to many weddings, I've organised many weddings, and generally this is the practice, but you, you've left the best stuff till last. Your wine that you've got here is the best I've ever tasted here. It's wonderful. And so it is with the deeper theological significance. When Jesus transforms us, he transforms us perfectly. He makes us better than we ever were before. And it is the case when we become Christians. Our old selves are transformed and we become so much better. Our behaviours are transformed and they become so much better. Instead of being liars and haters and cheaters and nasty to those around us, we become loving. We have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We have all those wonderful things, so much more perfect than what we were before. He transforms us from something bad to something good. And we see that with the way some of the commentators, they, they latch on to the fact that the water there was used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And they see that Jesus is transforming that old religion of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. We've got the water of Judaism being changed into the wine of Christianity. And so it is when we become a Christian. We're taken out of whatever religion we were following beforehand and we're given this choice, this, the best wine, Instead, and we follow a new religion that brings so much more. Because we're all in a, another sort of religion before we become Christians. We're in some sort of religion of works. We may idolise something, we may make an idol out of it, or we may make an idol out of ourselves, but eventually that just brings despair and destruction. We see that at the moment. So many people made idols out of money. 
They saw the share market increasing all the time. They were getting so much more money. A family friend was always on the internet watching his money grow. And what has happened? Has it brought them joy and everlasting peace? Well, we've had this economic meltdown, this global credit crunch come through and so many people are despairing. They're idle. What has it brought them? They're idle of money. It has brought them despair and depression and they don't know how to live anymore because their idol isn't there for them anymore. And so it is with Jesus. He transforms us from that religion that we may be following that just brings despair and ultimately eternal punishment in hell and gives us a religion that brings us joy and peace and gives us eternal life instead of eternal punishment. Jesus transforms perfectly. He doesn't give us something, he doesn't take the water and give something that's kind of like water. He gives something that is choice and wonderful that we wish we'd had before now, just like this master of the banquet says. We should have had this while we were able to taste it better. We wish we'd had it from the very beginning. So my question for you this morning is, are you being transformed? Have you been transformed? If you're not a Christian, be transformed. Admit your need, that you need transformation. You are a sinful person in need of a saviour. Humble yourself. Ask him, beg him to transform you. Don't order him to do it. You can be bold to him because he's made promises, but reflect that the only reason is because he, in his pleasure, chooses to let you be transformed, to come to him in boldness, that he will never cast anyone away who comes to him in repentance and belief. And be obedient. Do whatever he tells you to do. He says repent, repent. He says believe, believe. Don't think that there's another way that Jesus will transform me. This is the way he said it happens. You believe the good news, you repent of your sins. That's how it happens. Be obedient and do that. And believe he can do so easily. You may think you're too difficult a person to be transformed. No, Jesus can do it easily. And believe that there's an abundance of grace. No matter how many sins you've got in your life or how much sin you continue to do and you think, oh, Jesus can't save me. I've got too many sins. No, we have that promise in Romans that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It abounds even more. Whenever there's sin and we trust in Jesus, grace continues to cover it up, to continue to take it away. And then look at how better your life will be. You'll have choice wine instead of the water that you were previously drinking. You'll have a wonderful life of good deeds that you can do, that Jesus will help you to do that. He'll continue transforming you. But if you are a Christian, are you continuing to be transformed? Or have you thought, oh, Jesus transformed me back when I became a Christian and that's it. He doesn't need to continue transforming me. No. We see these disciples. Verse 11. What happens when they see this transformation happen? This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Does this mean the disciples became believers at this point? No, we see that they had trusted him and followed him previously and said, this is the Messiah, this is the King, this is the one we need to follow. They'd already put their faith in him, but their faith was being increased. As they witnessed Jesus doing these miracles, as they found out more about Jesus, they continued to see their faith grow. They were continually being transformed. And so it is with us. We need to continue being transformed. We need to be like these disciples, continuing to put our faith in him, growing in our faith, 
getting greater in our faith. So what do we need to do? What do we see the way that Jesus transforms? We need to admit our need for his help. We need to come to him daily as Christians and say, I am a sinner, I need you to help me. We need to humble ourselves and beg him to do it. Don't order him to transform us, but say, Lord, in your good pleasure, I don't know why you're letting this sin take over my life. Please, Lord, take it away. Don't let it be here any longer. Be obedient. Do whatever he tells you. Don't think that you know best. Do whatever he tells you and know that he can transform easily. He can transform you easily and he can transform the people around us easily. We pray for Dremoin. He can transform them all and he can transform abundantly and he can transform them perfectly. They can come and join with us in worship of him each week. They can come and join with the Presbyterians. They can come and join with the Anglicans and other Protestant churches that are faithful to his word and wanting to do whatever he tells them to do. Pray that that will happen, that he will transform your own life and transform the lives of those around you. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious account of this miracle that Jesus did and we thank you that he does so much more than just transform water into wine but that he transforms people that he has transformed so many of us here this morning and he continues to transform us day by day as we become stronger in the faith we pray that we'll be always ready to admit our need, never think that we are at some sort of limit where our holiness is okay and we don't have no more need but we'll humble ourselves come to you and ask for you to transform our lives and that we will believe that you can do it that you can do so easily you can do so abundantly and you do so perfectly we pray that we will want this to happen in our lives and we pray that we will want to ha- this ha- to happen in the people around us we pray for Dremoyne give us Dremoyne Lord give us Sydney Please, we know that you can do it and we pray that you will. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.